Hi there, this is the Rev. Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, and this is Love to Tell the Story. In faith, we are always admonished to do the right thing, but when you've done the wrong thing, what then? That's the question that's asked in today's message, which is drawn from Hosea chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 and chapter 5 verse 15 through chapter 6 verse 6, as well as from 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. In biblical parlance, they are often referred to as trustworthy sayings. And there are at least five of them scattered throughout the so-called pastoral epistles. That is, the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and the letter to Titus. Simply explained, friends, these are the major points that Paul wanted to make sure that his readers perfectly understood before proceeding. Because first off, Paul tells you so. Because uh, the thing about these sayings is, is you do always know that they're coming. Paul announces it. The saying is sure and worthy of acceptance. That's how we read it in the NRSV. And secondly, what follows that is usually something that, while absolutely essential for understanding our Christian faith, what Paul is about to say might nonetheless be a little bit hard to hear and difficult to swallow. And so it is with the trustworthy saying at the center of our text for this morning that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which, Paul hastens to add, I am the foremost. Now, in in at least one sense, for Paul to proclaim that Jesus came into the world to save sinners does not seem like all that much of a radical statement or something hard to hear. I mean, after all, that Christ died for our sins on the cross is central to just about everything we know to be true about our Christian faith. It's certainly not anything that Paul would first need to qualify before writing to these early Christians. And yet, even as Sarah was reading to the, us, that to us today, it kind of hits in an uncomfortable way, does it not? Because if Christ Jesus did, in fact, come into the world to save sinners, it would follow that there were and are sinners to save. And if the Apostle Paul, of all people, would refer to himself in this letter as the foremost of sinners, or as it's translated elsewhere, the chief of sinners, or the worst sinner, or even, get this one, public sinner number one. That's how it's rendered in the message, folks. If Paul looks at himself that way, then what does that say about you and me? I remember back in seminary how those of us who were serving as student pastors would often return to school on Monday mornings ready to go to the cafeteria and commiserate on the experience of preaching to these mostly very small congregations, 
people who were at once incredibly supportive and encouraging and nurturing of our efforts in the pulpit, but also who were a bit, shall we say, skeptical. Which was more than a little unnerving to us. I remember specifically one of my classmates lamenting to us that he had an extremely difficult, to the point of nearly impossible time that week, looking into the eyes of those sweet people sitting in the pews in front of him and saying, announcing, proclaiming, admonishing them that they were all, in fact, sinners in need of salvation. I remember him telling us about this because, for my part, I preached on pretty much the the same kind of text that Sunday. And after worship, one of the sweetest of the sweet elderly ladies of that church came up to me. I'll never forget her. Her name was Albert Burl. And we used to call her Sunshine because she always sat in the back row of the sanctuary listening to the sermon with her eyes closed, with a broad smile on her face. She was soaking it all in. And so after church, she came through the line, she took my hand, and with and this wonderful voice of hers, she said, you know, that was very nice, dear. <laughs> but you don't want to do that too often because people wouldn't like it. <laughs> See what I mean here about these trustworthy sayings kind of being hard to hear? The fact of the matter is that none of us want to think of ourselves that way. We don't like this label of sinner. Now, last week, as you'll recall, we spoke about the need, our call in Christ Jesus to always be seeking to do the right thing in faith. Now, I'll be honest with you, as I often do after the preaching is done, I sort of found myself that afternoon sort of self-analyzing the sermon that day. And I found myself wondering if perhaps it had come off as, well, a bit obvious. I mean, who doesn't think we ought to be doing the right thing? Whether it's in faith or otherwise. Just makes sense, right? Maybe the real question I started thinking is what happens when we've done the wrong thing? What about those times, and we can all name them, folks, when our intentions were good, when we really did want to do what's right in a given situation, but for whatever reason, we just keep on doing the opposite? Or even worse, what happens when it's become, well, easier, more convenient, normal, if you will, or so, well, enjoyable that the right thing to do kind of gets lost in the process. What then? In other words, what happens when it's begun to feel to us that if Paul is the chief and foremost of sinners, then we might well be working our way up to becoming second in command. Now, this is addressed throughout Scripture. And the Old Testament, of course, doesn't hedge on matters such as these. 
in our text from this morning, our first text from this morning that Sarah read to us from the prophet Hosea, we hear in that a literal indictment of the inability of God's people to accept any responsibility or guilt for its sin. Swearing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery break out everywhere. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. All clearly, by the way, the wrong things to do. And it's gotten to the point, says the prophet, where there has been a judgment upon the land in the form of ecological disaster. Therefore, the land mourns, says the prophet, and all who live in it languish. But perhaps most damning of all is the lament that despite the horrible results of such sin, Israel just doesn't seem to care. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. You know, it seems promising at first, seems nurturing, seems good, but ultimately and swiftly it dries up in the light and the heat of another day. It would seem as though as much as Israel wished for prosperity and plenty to return, they were half-hearted at best about repentance and their faithfulness to God. And the thing is, friends, we get that, don't we? For as much as we desire and we know to do that which is right and good and, and in keeping with God's precepts of love and faithfulness, all too often those challenges and temptations we face in the heat of the day end up pulling us away from that which logically, lovingly, and spiritually seems so very obvious to us. And it all comes back to a break, a schism, if you will, in that sacred relationship we have with God, that innate tendency that we have, despite the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we want to live independently, that we want to live autonomously of God, which, by the way, is the very definition of sin, original sin, in fact. But you see, even as the cycle of doing the wrong thing again and again and again and again continues, here we have the prophet still calling again and again and again for God's people to return to the Lord. For it is he who has torn and he will heal us. He has struck down and he will bind us up. And get this. Speaking of prophets and prophecy, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we might live before him. Which brings us back to Paul's letter to Timothy and his trustworthy saying that Christ came into the world to save sinners 
of whom he says, I am the foremost. Now, once again, what we have here in these uh, pastoral epistles is a, a very personal appeal on the part of Paul to some faithful co-workers, namely Timothy and Titus. And they are, similar to what we talked about last week, dealing with some real-life challenges to the integrity and the purity of the gospel message. Simply put, friends, these letters deal with some of the messier aspects of trying to live out of our faith. I love uh, what Thomas Long has written about this. He says that most of the time, we would much rather read accounts of the church cruising down the highway of faith In the pastoral epistles, though, he says, we see the church on the mechanic's lift, in the garage, and we are given guidance for performing an ecclesial engine overhaul. That's a phrase I wish I'd thought of. An ecclesial engine overhaul, which may, in fact, as we look at it, make it an urgent issue for us today. So yes, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And like it or not, hard as it is for us to admit or to confess, we, friends, are the sinners that Christ came to save. But as you consider this, as you let that kind of resonate within you, consider also that Paul says something else about this. He says, remember this that even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Or if I can go to the message again, the only credentials I brought to this ministry were invective and witch hunts and arrogance. But, he goes on to say, with a heart full of thanksgiving, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Think of this for a moment, friends. Grace, which by definition is a gift freely given. This gift of love and forgiveness and new life. Grace extended to the same one who I'm going to quote Rick Power here, who, quote, stood as an approving witness to the stoning of Stephen, who dragged believers out of their homes to face imprisonment, who made it his sole purpose in life to crush this new movement of Christ followers, and who, perhaps worst of all, did all of this mistakenly believing he was serving God at the time. This was Paul. And yet, he writes to Timothy, for that very reason, I receive mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. What we need to understand is that Paul had begun as the lowest of the low. He was at a place where the wrong thing was the starting place. But the point is that his story ends not in that place of lowliness, but in the glory of Christ. 
This was the assurance, sure and worthy of acceptance, that Paul wanted to convey to Timothy, just as he does for all of us who seek to do the right thing, even when all too often we've ended up doing the opposite. It's a crucial word and a reminder of true grace. For us, maybe it was in the moments when we messed up. And we all can talk about those. Times when we failed to do the right thing in faith and in love. Maybe it was an ill-spoken word shared regrettably with somebody or even a more regrettable action done without thinking. Or else it could have happened when we made a choice not to stand up. Not to stand with someone who had been knocked down or rejected or subjected to some manner of hatred, the kind of stuff that has become all too hatred in this present age. Maybe it was a time we did that even when we knew better. Could have been an instance of discovering to our great despair that the ethical or moral standards of our lives have slipped. Or it could be, I'm just saying here, It could be that feeling of overwhelming shock, even revulsion at the depths of selfishness and the realization that our lives might well have fallen far beyond what we think possible from the life we've intended, a life filled with God's love and God's purpose and with faith. Now, you've got to understand, friends, it is not my desire here today, nor is it my, my purpose to send you forth this morning stinging from words of judgment and rebuke. But I would say to each one of us here that as each one of us does, we stand naked before God, and when we stand naked and open and revealed before God, there is always going to be sin. We have done the wrong thing. You know, in the church where I grew up, every Sunday we did a prayer of confession. We had very much a high church Episcopal uh, liturgy in those days. And, And we always prayed the same prayer. We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. And this one that even as a kid got to me. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. It's humbling. But the good news, you see, is that this isn't the end of the story. The good news is that through mercy in great patience and in the light of God's limitless and overwhelming grace bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus, we are forgiven and redeemed and saved. It was there in the words of the anthem that we heard earlier in the service. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
Amazing grace that breaks the chains and sets us free. Amazing grace that opens up this new future for each one of us as a redeemed child of God. Amazing grace that opens before us brand new opportunities for finding the right things to do in this world that's sorely in need of simple human kindness and true compassion that needs peace whole peace and justice that's rooted in Christian love rather than political divisiveness. Grace that opens us up, each and every one of us, to a moral and ethical center that begins from the heart. Because, beloved, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And yes, that means you and me. But Christ Jesus also came to send us forth as his disciples, as his voice, his hands, and his heart in the redeeming work of the kingdom. So let us go forth on that sacred calling, my friends, and to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. And that's the message we've entitled, But When You've Done the Wrong Thing. It was recorded during our September 15th service of worship at East Congregational Church. As always, we'd love to welcome you in person at one of the services at East Church. We gather every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, and we're located on 51 Mountain Road in beautiful Concord, New Hampshire. I would love to have the chance to greet you. Well, that's it for another installment of Love to Tell the Story. This is Michael Lowry. I thank you for listening. And once again, I do appreciate your support of this podcast wherever you happen to be listening. Please keep in touch. You can do that through a voice message on the podcast page, via Facebook, or an email. Just let me know what you're thinking. And until next time, may God bless you with a great day. Talk to you soon.